Glad that you are with us today. I want to start off with a little math this morning, which I know driving in, you were all saying, I hope we get to do math this morning. So uh, here we go. Here's just a little bit, bit of math. It's just, just for you. You don't have to tell us your answers or anything. But try to calculate the number of people that you encountered since last Sunday. Like Monday to today, how many people would you say you you, you encountered, you passed. Start with uh, the people you physically saw, like you were in the same room with them, you're in the same car with them, same office with them, uh, same store with them. Uh, who are the people that you were physically around uh, this week? Maybe that's in the tens and the hundreds, maybe in the thousands. Then, then calculate how many people maybe you didn't see in person but you interacted with online somehow. You had a Zoom meeting with them. Uh, you saw their post. You liked their post. You commented on their post. You judged their post. Whatever you did to their post. That person that you had some thought about, you had some like uh, reaction to, I mean, it would probably multiply, maybe twice as many, three times as many, depending on, on your uh, social media habits. But we interact with probably thousands of people every single week we are around we pass we push our grocery cart by somebody checks us out at the cash register somebody serves us at the restaurant we sit next to somebody we are inundated around a whole lot of people every single week but the reality is as we interact with people most of the people we probably don't even notice most of the people are in the background. They're kind of in the shadows because we have our routine, right? We have our, uh, our to-do list. We have places we have to be. We have a schedule that we're on. And so we're moving through all of that, and people are all around us, many of whom we don't even see or take notice of. Some of you enjoyed a post I made just a couple of weeks ago. Um, it, it was me in a uh, law enforcement uniform standing with another guy. There was a time many years ago now where I had some discretionary time. And so I applied for and I got hired to be an extra on a couple of shows and movies and that sort of thing. It was like a six-month period. I just happened to have a little bit of extra time. A friend of mine had done it. So I thought, well, I'm going to try this. It was tons of fun. It was fascinating to see behind the scenes and how it all works and, and how they film it and how long it takes. It didn't pay squat, but it was fun anyway to be kind of in that environment. And what would happen is you would go, and if you, if you got called for a day, you'd spend 8, 10, 12 hours, same spot, and you would film probably less than 60 seconds of the movie during that whole 12 hours or more that you were there. Sometimes more, mostly you, you film about 60 seconds at the most in one day. So it, it was just crazy to kind of watch behind the scenes. But what you, what you found out quickly as an extra, because, you know, you, you sort of had these dreams of being discovered, uh, or if not, if not being discovered, you were going to be able to take all your buddies to the movie, and you were going to have this moment, right, this debut. But what you figured out really quickly is that if you were an extra, like hardly anybody saw you in the movie. Like nobody could pick you out because you just faded into the background. You were kind of blurred out in the background. I'll give you an example. 
This is a, a, a screenshot of a, a movie scene. Coming in the door is uh, Robert Patrick, which if, if you looked him up, you'd say, oh, I've seen him in some things. Robert Patrick is coming through the door. He is about to have a very dramatic moment with Carmela Zumbada, the, the actress whose back is to us. They're about to have this really uh, dramatic conversation in this salon. But while this is going on, if you zoom in really close, next slide. Like right here, see how it's kind of red and white striped shirt? That's your boy right there. That's him. That's your boy right there. Look at this right here. Look at that. And I spent 10 hours. I spent 10 hours. I walked back and forth at Ansley Mall with a fake cup of coffee for 10 hours. And that's what I got. There's actually a, a, a young lady on the, to my right. She's on the other side. You, see? Yeah, you got it. So when we would walk by, she would do this thing where she would go like that, thinking that she would get her face on the screen. That's what she got. That's what she got. So you figure out after a while, this is fun, and it, you know, it's, it's a cool story to tell people later that you did this thing. Nobody sees you there. Like, you could watch this scene a million times, and you would never know I was there. Now, here's the thing about our lives. We walk by people all the time and don't know they're there. They're just in the background. They're just kind of fuzzy objects in the back because we're focused on everything we have to do. Our to-do list is so important. Our, our, um, our focus is not on them. Our focus is on us. Our focus is on what we have to accomplish. And they're there. They're walking by. Maybe they're struggling with something. We don't ever see them. They're just fuzzy in the background. They don't make it into the scene that we're shooting. I, I, I was, uh, many, many years ago, I, I heard Donald Miller speak. And, and he made this comment that always stuck with me. He says that most of us live our lives as if we're in a movie about us. Our life is a movie, and we're the central character. It's all, our whole movie is about us. So he would say, I live my life as if my life's a movie all about me. And you live your life as if your movie's all about you. You think you're the star of the movie. You're not. I'm the star of the movie. Your background, no, I'm just kidding. We all live this way, right? We all live thinking the cameras are on me, the main plot is me and the, and the problem when we live so much of our life that way is that we miss the people that we're passing all the time we miss the people who who maybe need somebody to stop or need somebody to, to speak or need somebody to make eye contact because it's just our routine it's just our ordinary we're just getting from day to day to day and all of these people we walk right by because we don't see them in the story we, we don't notice them in the story, but they're in the story. Last week, we were talking about doing ordinary acts for other people. Right? It, it's hard to do ordinary acts when you're the center of the movie. I was thinking about this theme of movies all about me, right? Character all about me. And a couple weeks ago, I came across this video, and it's really short. Yeah, G L 
okay, this, this, is, this is some of our lives, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a dad of three girls. I didn't need to see that movie. I've lived that movie right there. Like, I've li- I live that video every day. But some of this is the way we live. Never forget, you're the main character in your movie, in your life. And, and I get it. There is a place for you understanding your value. There's a place for that. There's, there's a place for self-esteem and, and knowing that you are loved and valued by God. There is a, a place for you. I'm not saying there's not. What I'm saying is we have to be very careful that the whole movie doesn't become about me and I miss everybody around me because, because God's called us to other people. I said last Sunday uh, in, in the message on ordinary acts that in the economy of Jesus, there are no ordinary acts and there are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary acts and there are no ordinary people. We said that Jesus elevates the simplest of acts, like giving a cup of cold water, uh, giving food to somebody who's hungry, visiting somebody who, who, who is sick. Jesus elevated just those small little acts and said, no, this is really, really important. But the reason the act is important is because the person you did it for is really, really important. The act itself, by itself, may not be that important. What gives it value is you're doing a very small thing for a very important person whenever you serve someone else, an infinitely valuable person, or to say it this way, small acts are extraordinary because the object of the act is infinitely valuable. It's not the cup of cold water. It's not the food even. It's not the clothes. It's that that person is infinitely valuable, and therefore anything you do for another human being is valuable, is extraordinary. It's, it's extraordinary because of the other person. C.S. Lewis writes about this in The Weight of Glory. He says at one point, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. Translation, Lewis is saying, it's, it's easy for most of us to think that we're really important and we're really valuable. That's, that's not a challenge for most of us. Most of us are very comfortable thinking God really loves me and and like heaven is my home and all of this great stuff that God wants to give to me. Lewis says, you can hardly think too much or too often about how valuable other people are. Few Few of us ever think too hard or too long about how infinitely valuable other people are. He went on in that same essay To say, it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. How do we conduct every human relationship? He mentions friendships, loves, play, politics. No matter what, no matter what the human interaction is, Lewis says, you got to conduct that interaction realizing there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. In other words, cultures, nations, civilizations, they have a beginning and an end. They're going to pass away one day. Humans are not. Humans are immortal, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and explore, exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor 
is the holiest object presented to your senses. Next to the great mystery of the body and blood of Jesus that we share in communion and the thought that God's Son came to die for us. Next to that, on this earth, the holiest thing you will ever see is your neighbor, another person. The holiest thing that will ever be in front of your eyes is another person. This is why cruelty is such an offense to God harshness, tearing down, attacking is such an offense against the character of God. Now, Lewis draws this idea from the scriptures. Genesis chapter 1, God is announcing that he is about to create humans, and he writes in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, he tells us, then God said, let us make mankind or humans in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God had created the universe. He had populated the earth with plants and animals. And then his final creation, the only creation he says this about, we're going to create humans in our image, in our likeness, in the image of God, in the likeness of God. Genesis 5, 1, just a few chapters over. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God, to bear the image of God, to bear the holy, eternal likeness of God the Creator. He stamped that into every human being who would ever be born. Over in the New Testament, James says the same thing. James chapter 3, verse 9. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. And just a little bit later, James says, brothers and sisters, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. We shouldn't praise God out of the same mouth that we're cursing and tearing down and being cruel to other humans who are made in our God's image this shouldn't be because that person in front of you the person that you are forming opinions on the person that you are labeling and categorizing that person is created in the image of God James like C.S. Lewis after him says there are no ordinary people none there are no mortals there are only immortals on this planet you interact with people who are infinitely valuable because they bear the image of God. Now, I can't explain exactly what that is. I can't really explain what sin and the fall did to that image that is in us. Scholars have been arguing about that forever and ever. What I can tell you is that before sin and after sin in the Bible, we are told all humans made in the image of God, stamped with the likeness of God infinitely valuable because they reflect who God is. You will never meet someone not made in the image of God, ever. You will never have a conversation with someone who is not made in the image of God. You will never look into the eyes of someone who's not created in the image of God. You will never comment on someone's post on social media who is not made, created in the image and the likeness of God. We are all made in the image of God. We are the same in this way. Not only are we all made in the image of God, we're all loved by God. 
We're all made in the image of God. We're all loved by God. The person you like the most, the person you would agree with the most, the person you enjoy being around the most, and the person you dislike the most, the person who shares none of your opinions about anything, the person that you don't enjoy being around. Both of those people, the Bible says, made in the image of God, loved by God, both of them. We are exactly the same in this, week, in this way. Regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our experiences, regardless of our cultural difference, regardless of our, 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 the different languages that we speak, we are exactly the same in that we're made in the image of God and we are loved by God. The opposite of this commonality that, that we're taught in the Bible is, is a term that gets used a, a lot in our culture right now, and it's the word othering. Othering. Othering is the tendency to look at somebody and see our differences. You are not like me. You are other than me. We are not the same. We don't agree. Othering happens all over the place in our culture where we immediately make judgments about people and decide we are not alike. We are not the same instead of seeing the intrinsic value of another person. Not what they can do for us, not in like a utilitarian uh, uh, perspective of, well, they're useful. Well, they can contribute this. Well, they're good for this not in a utilitarian how can they help me how, how useful are they and not even looking at someone and asking how can i help them at least not initially looking at someone and think thinking well i could be the hero to their story i could be the rescuer to their story no initially looking at other people and just seeing people just seeing human beings seeing that we are alike that we are created in the image of God for all of our differences. We are like at our core in that we're created in the image of God and we are both loved by God. Jesus didn't other people. He didn't look at people and see the other. Jesus' disciples often did. The people that were around Jesus often did they very distinctly divided themselves into jews and gentiles and one was right and the other was wrong and one was good and the other was bad and we keep ourselves separate they had these divisions they looked at uh, different cultures like the samaritans and they saw them as other they're not us they're other. They're not like us. They're different. They think differently. They live differently. They believe differently. They are other than us. We want to stay separate from them. This wasn't the way Jesus moved through crowds of people. Jesus valued every individual as he moved through the crowds. Jesus instead of othering the Samaritans, he sits at a well and has a, an extensive conversation with a woman there that everyone else had walked past. Everyone else had ignored. If you read the story, when the disciples come back from town, they are shocked that Jesus is speaking to this woman. Why? Because she's the other. She's not like us. She's not one of us. She's different from us. Uh, Jesus didn't see those categories. He tells a story 
where he makes the Samaritan the hero of his story. As if, again, to say, guys, we're, we're all people right here. We're all humans, made in the image of God, loved by God, in need of a Savior. We're all the, the same. Have whatever labels you've put, whatever disagreements you have at our core, we are the same. Jesus elevates women in his ministry. We see it all throughout the Gospels. At a time when women were not elevated. Jesus elevates the value of children. His own disciples didn't do that. Jesus takes time all throughout his teaching ministry to stop for those who are sick, those who are blind, those who are begging, those who are on the outside and the outskirts of society. Jesus often stops a whole crowd of people who were walking by a disabled person, walking by a blind person, walking by a woman who had a need, and Jesus stops the whole parade and says, I see them. I need to talk to them. I want to be with them. None of the rest of you see them, what Jesus was implying to his followers. The rest of you would have kept walking. I'm not going to keep walking. Zacchaeus was so far in the background, he had to climb up a tree just to see Jesus. And Jesus stops and says, let's have dinner tonight. Nobody else would have done that. Nobody else would have seen what they thought of as the other except for Jesus. It's one of the most amazing things about his movement that we don't often recognize because a lot of us know these stories. We know kind of what's going to happen with the movement of Jesus. But one of the most amazing things is that it was the people on the outskirts of society that were drawn to him the most. It was the people left out who got in to his movement. It was the people that other people dismissed who were drawn to Jesus. If Jesus' goal had been to win the popular, the famous, he was a miserable failure because the popular weren't drawn to Jesus. The people who were drawn to Jesus were the people in the shadows, the people in the background, the people who were blurred out in the main picture. And Jesus called them to himself, and they responded. And they came because they finally met someone who loved them. When he chose his disciples, Jesus was doing this. It's like a little psychological test he had going on with his, with his group of 12. Because within that group, Jesus caused the loud, impetuous to come follow him. And he caused, he caused the thoughtful and the cautious and the reserved. And he puts them in the same room together. Nathaniel was one of his disciples before he became his disciple. Nathaniel is the one who said, can anything good come from Nazareth? He was talking about Jesus because Jesus came from Nazareth. Nathaniel walks in the door with, with questions about Jesus. Nathaniel walks in the door suspicious of Jesus, but Jesus isn't suspicious of Nathaniel. Jesus says, come on in. Come on. You see, Nathaniel said the same thing some of us say. How could anything good come from that part of town? How could anything good come from those people? We know who those people are. How could anything good come from that area? And Jesus said to Nathaniel, come see for yourself. Just come on, see for yourself. Within his group of followers, Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, which meant 
Matthew was on the payroll of the Romans. And he was taking taxes from the Jewish people, sometimes taxing them beyond what they actually owed, so he could keep more of it. He was working on behalf of the Romans to tax the Jewish people. And in the same group, Jesus invites Simon the Zealot, who was a political activist who hated the Romans and was working to try to overthrow them. So in the same room, Jesus calls somebody who hated the Romans and somebody who was helping the Romans and said, we got to figure this out. Because you're the same to me. You're the same. We got to take labels off. We've got to release whatever the background is, whatever the experience is. Whatever's happened before this moment, we have to let it go because we're on a mission that's far greater than anything you've thought about. It's far greater than your opinions about this or about that. We're on a mission for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just called people to himself, people out of the background, people who were fuzzy in the photos, and Jesus thrust them into the main parts of the story. In 2013, <clears throat> author George Saunders was invited to give the commencement speech <clears throat> at Syracuse University. And so the, the day came. <clears throat> he gave a speech. It's since been turned into a little book uh, with the complete commencement speech. But he started out talking about what he, how he viewed commencement speeches. This is how he started. Uh, some old fart, his best years behind him, who over the course of his life has made a series of dreadful mistakes, that would be me, Saunders said, gives heartfelt advice to a group of shining, energetic young people with all of their best years ahead of them, that would be you, and I intend to respect that tradition. So then Saunders begins to, to tell them what they can get out of this speech. He says, now... One useful thing you can do with old people, in addition to borrowing money from them or getting them to do one of their old-time dances so you can watch while laughing, is ask, looking back, what do you regret? This is a great question for people that are older than you. Looking back, what do you regret? What would you change? What do you, what do you wish had been different? And, and from there, Saunders begins to relay story after story of events in his life that he doesn't regret. And to be honest, if you ever get to see the whole speech, if you ever read that portion of the speech, you will think what I thought, which is those are very regrettable things that you're talking about. They, they were, it was anything from just embarrassment and some humiliating moment in his life to really bad decisions that he made. And as he told these, you're going to be thinking, well, surely you regret that. And to all of those, he said, I don't really regret that. That's not really my regret. Then he got to his regret. And that part of the speech has been narrated and illustrated into this video. I'd say as a goal in life, you could do worse than try to be kinder. In seventh grade, this new kid joined our class. In the interest of confidentiality, her name will be Ellen. Ellen was small, shy. She wore these blue cat's eye glasses that at the time only old ladies wore. 
When nervous, which was pretty much always, she had a habit of taking a strand of hair into her mouth and chewing on it. So she came to our school and our neighborhood and was mostly ignored, occasionally teased, your hair tastes good, that sort of thing. I could see this hurt her. I still remember the way she'd look after such an insult, eyes cast down, a little gut kicked as if having just been reminded of her place in things, she was trying as much as possible to disappear. After a while, she'd drift away, hair strands still in her mouth. Sometimes I'd see her hanging around alone in her front yard as if afraid to leave it. And then she moved. That was it. One day she was there, next day she wasn't. End of story. Now, why do I regret that? Why, 42 years later, am I still thinking about it? Relative to most of the other kids, I was actually pretty nice to her. I never said an unkind word to her. In fact, I, I sometimes even mildly defended her. But still, it bothers me. What I regret most in my life are failures of kindness. Those moments when another human being was there in front of me, suffering, and I responded sensibly, reservedly, mildly. Or to look at it from the other end of the telescope, who in your life do you remember most fondly with the most undeniable feelings of warmth? Those who were kindest to you, I bet. But kindness, it turns out, is hard. It starts out all rainbows and puppy dogs and expands to include, well, everything. I know you watched the video. I just want to highlight a little bit of what he said. What I regret most in my life are failures of kindness. Those moments when another human being was there in front of me, suffering, and I responded sensibly, reservedly, mildly. Another person was there. It was right in front of me. Maybe I didn't do anything to harm them. I just didn't do anything at all. And then that line, and she moved, and she was gone. There are people like that in our lives all the time. They're there for just a little while, and we think about saying something. And we think about saying hello. And we think about seeing if they need anything. And then they're gone. And we don't get that moment again. I realize that none of us can speak to every single person we encounter on a given day. That would be impossible. You would get nothing else done. But do we speak to anyone? Is there ever a moment of empathy? Is there ever a moment where we see someone in the shadows, in the background, and we don't have time to stop? We have other things to do, but something inside of us says, take a minute. Take just a minute. Is there ever that tension within us that we listen to? Just the habit of empathy. The ability, the way Jesus pulled people out of the background. Like, who is there in your life? Who will you encounter this week that you need to pull out of the background and let them know that they belong, that they are seen, that they are known, that they have a a place. It was a great ending. Saunders said, but kindness, it turns out, is hard. 
It starts out all rainbows and puppy dogs and expands to include, well, everything. And I would add, and everyone. Kindness is one of those many Christian qualities that's great to talk about on Sunday, isn't it? Like everybody's pro-kindness today. Everybody believes this is true today. We sit in this room and we sing songs and it's Sunday. We all agree with this. If we took a poll, no one's voting against kindness today. Nobody's voting it down on Sunday. But tomorrow is Monday. Kindness, like so much of the Christian life, like so many of the qualities that we are called to exhibit, they are easy to talk about on Sunday and difficult to live out on Monday. Because tomorrow, you will go to the same office you will walk the same hallways at school. You will shop at the same store. You will pass many of the same people. And the words of this message will be very dim in your ears by that time. But that's the thing about kindness. It turns out that if you take it seriously, it eventually encompasses everything. God, thank you for Jesus' role model of how he just saw people that other people didn't see. He had time for people that others didn't give time to. He valued people that others would pass by. And he knew every one of these are created in the image of God, loved by God. We step into a world of routine tomorrow. We have to be at work at school at the same time tomorrow that we had to be last week. We have many of the same obligations over the next six days. And if we allow it, the movie will play out and we'll miss the people in the background. But as representatives of Jesus in this world of darkness, let us be light. Let us be goodness. Let us be kindness. For there are no ordinary people anywhere. In Jesus' name, amen.